Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast where we discuss technology, leadership, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. We explore their insights into some of the most exciting trends and topics of our time and learn from their personal experiences. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we'll be talking about some of the major geopolitical socioeconomic shifts, fake news, and other technological trends affecting our future. Our special guest today is Richard Quest. Richard is CNN's foremost international business correspondent and presenter of Quest Means Business, the definite word on how we earn and spend our money. He's based in New York and is one of the most instantly recognizable members of the CNN team. Quest has regularly reported from the G20 meetings and attends the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland each year. He's covered every major stock market and financial crisis since Black Monday in 1987. Thank you so much for joining the Future Forecast, Richard. A very good day to you. I'm very pleased to be here. (laughs) That's wonderful to hear. To start things off, we have a few questions to warm you up. I would like to uh, know, what is your morning routine? Oh, that's really straightforward. Glad we started with the easy stuff. Uh, (laughs) I am a creature of habit, always have been. Um, when something is, is different, I sort of feel very uncertain. So I wake up at about 5 a.m. Uh, I have a bowl of oatmeal with blueberries and then I go to the gym. So the gym is from, say, 6.30 to 7.30, 8 o'clock. And then it's back protein shake and a read of the morning newspapers. Now, I'm a bit old fashioned uh, and perhaps one shouldn't admit this on a podcast, which is very modern. But. I like to read a newspaper, the, the, the hard copy of the paper. So I'll sit for 20 minutes and just read the New York Times properly from cover to cover. And then dressed, um, cufflinks, tie, scarf, hat, and on my way. <laughs> that sounds very disciplined of you, but I guess that's the recipe for every successful uh, person. Now to the next question. When was the last time you stepped out of your comfort zone? I think one steps out of it in different ways. So uh, in the gym, for example, my trainer will make me step out of my comfort zone either in a number of heavier weights or different exercises or suggesting we try some Pilates or yoga or, 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 or whatever. And work, uh, different stories take you out of your comfort zone. You suddenly have, I, I know nothing about sport or very little about sport. So if I suddenly have to do a sports story, that takes me out of my comfort zone. And then I, I think... I think one's always looking at opportunities in different ways where one can be taken out of one's comfort zone so that you experience different uh, different parts of life. I agree. Richard, you've been working in the media and as a journalist for many years, and you've felt the pulse on major shifts during your lifetime reporting on events that have truly fundamentally changed our world. And at the Oslo Business Forum conference in September 2018, you mentioned Brexit, the conflicts in Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, the political shifts in the States, the oil prices, China, and fake news, to name a few. And I also know that you attend some of the most important business and political forums yearly, including the G20 meetings and the World Economic Forum. And hopefully you can tell those of us who are not invited there what we should be concerned with. But to start things off and give our listeners a feel of what is occupying your mind these days, could you give us an overview of the major trends happening in the world right now? (laughs) Sure. Uh, On the economic front, there are uh, three or four that will dominate the early part of next year. The first, of course, is Brexit. 
and exactly how the UK will leave the European Union. And you notice I say how, because I don't think it's a question in if. I would, uh, could there be a second referendum? Yes. Could there be indicative votes? Yes. Could there be a fall of the government? Yes. But, but if this train continues down the tracks that it is on, then the UK will leave the European Union. And it is only really a question of, of just how messy that is going to be, uh, what sort of deal they will leave upon, and then where thereafter, what sort of future trading relationship they will have. Look, it's not going to be pretty. Whatever happens is not going to be pretty here. However, I think it's, you know, a, a lot of the, a lot of the, those who want to stay in and the remainers are trying to find any way they can to, to shoehorn that back into the agenda, conveniently forgetting that the British public did vote to leave. And you can argue about how many voted, the circumstances, the way, the, the measure of the vote, the small majority. But, you know, you don't do that with every election. And just because you don't get a result that you like, don't like, doesn't mean it's not a valid result. Now, the second thing we're going to watch very closely, of course, is trade. The trade relationship between the United States and China. We already have tariffs. They're getting worse and on the cards is much worse to come. So can President Xi and can President Trump come to a deal? One that will remove the tariffs and put the trading relationship on a long-term basis. And finally and briefly, um, future economic growth worldwide. Look, you've noticed the volatility in the markets in the last few weeks. This is going to get worse. And everybody that I speak to in the market now says they're expecting a slowdown. They're expecting some say recession, some say not, but it's going to be uncomfortable. The sort of rates of growth and the sort of uh, economic activity we've enjoyed over the past 10 years of the bull market are going to come to an end. And the trends that we're talking about, they're very crucial, obviously, and complex, but many I guess at least in Scandinavia, might feel that they're a bit too big or too complex and that they might not have an effect on their day-to-day -day business. But I know that you believe that they do. Could you tell us how these trends affect us in the Nordics and especially in the business sector? Oh, you've got to know. Look, Well, first of all, which of the countries, I mean, all the countries in the region are either members of the European Union or have a have their own relationship EFTA or EAA relationship EEA relationship with the EU. So it doesn't matter whether you're Norway, Finland, Sweden, or Denmark. You're going to be affected by Brexit. So that that's a fairly straightforward one. In terms of trade, terms of Chinese trade, well, let's take a Volvo for example, and it's owned by a Chinese. It's the relationship it has with China the way in which the Chinese might use Volvo to sell either into or out of the United States. There are definite trade, I mean, you, there will definitely be a, a spillover effect. And as for economic growth, if global growth is slowing down, the Nordics are not going to be immune. And even Norway, even Norway with its large sovereign fund and its um, resources, yet yeah, we'll do better with a rising oil price, and they're certainly enjoying that at the moment. But a slowdown in global economics will hit everyone. And be, if anybody in your area is thinking that they will be left out or it will pass them by, then they're in for a very rude awakening. 
Uh-oh. <laughs> well, you've spent some time in the Scandinavia, or at least in Norway. So you have some knowledge on how we function here. And as an outsider looking in, how do you get a sense that our corporations or economic sector is rigged to meet these challenges or opportunities coming from, from what you just mentioned? So no discussion of Norway can take place without putting into context the sovereign fund and the wealth coming in. It's a given. Uh, it is managed in a particular way. There are particular benefits and particular uh, downsides to it. Overall, of course, it is a very strong benefit for the future economic stability of the country. But then you do have issues elsewhere. You do have issues of those who, do, are, who have not enjoyed the economic benefits. You've got questions of education. You do have questions, not as much as elsewhere, of immigration. There are lots of trade union and labour relations issues as the demographic of the workforce changes and the skills required. Now, this isn't unique to any individual country, but some will grapple with it in more difficulty than others. Norway will be on the more generous side of how the country deals with it, but it will feel an effect. There's no question about it. And I think the big issue for the Norway is going to be this continual policy of diversification from a resource, uh, from a, uh, a carbon fossil fuel economy. It's going to be very difficult. I mean, everybody's trying to do it. The UAE, Norway, everybody's trying to do it. Good luck is what I say. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you, do you have any recommendations on what we should do or what we should rely on when, when oil is no longer an option? It's a long way off, but not as long as people think. There is the, the, the brilliance, of course, of the Norway option was to tie up the sovereign fund where in a, in a, in a legal uh, um, handcuffs so that they can only be removed in certain, the money can only be used in certain ways at certain times uh, for, for certain purposes. That I think is a huge benefit. But, you know, I mean, let's just look at what um, the oil company did in renaming itself. Let's look at the, uh, the, the Norwegian, the airline, which of course is, is, a, is a mainstay and a bellwether within the country. If you look at all the major players uh, in, in, in the country, you see they are leaders in their own field. And I don't expect that to change anytime soon. Now, in contrast to what a lot of the people and companies coming out of Silicon Valley, uh, for one, you have at least what I see a somewhat more sober view on the future. And I mean, obviously, there's a lot of concerns, but we've also seen great improvements in many areas over the past few decades. More kids have access to education, fewer people are hungry, poverty is down and so on. But as at the Oslo Business Forum conference, you look back at 2008 and you referenced how incredibly bright we considered the future to be at the time. And then you implied that, well, in fact, it was not. Um, but 10 years later, in your view, is the future bright or gloomy? I def I'm going to throw a question back to you. What do you mean by that? Is the future bright or gloomy? I can give you a, a variety of answers that will cover <laughs> an entire gamut of possibilities. But what do you mean? Well, I guess based on all the information that you have and everything that you've seen during your career as a reporter, what do you see that the trends are, are, are shifting us into? I mean, does it look like we're going to be able to handle this? Does it look like that we're going to be able to come out on the other side in a, in a better world? Or 
are we facing something that we're not going to be able to to tackle? I think the problem here is not the changes that are taking place. We've had changes since the year dot, since Adam, since Eve first gave Adam that apple. Arguably, in the Garden of Eden, that was a change. And when, if you like the religious version, God threw them out of the Garden of Eden, that was a change. <laughs> and so you can go on right through to today. The difference, of course, is the speed of change, the nature of it. Look, I'll bet you this, I'll tell you this, when Adam and Eve realised they were naked and were thrown out, that was a bloody big change for them. Uh, we don't have that sort of change, but when you think about, I started, I'm 56, I started my career, we had typewriters, all right? Typewriters, manual typewriters. So I have gone through manual typewriters, through to electric typewriters and the skeletric, through to basic computers that could do virtually nothing through to more complex computers to those that now I can say, hey, Siri, and it'll tell me what the weather is or what I need to know. That speed of change will pick up. And that's what's going to be the challenge for society without any question how we manage that change. Societally, uh, we're spending longer online. We're spending longer looking at our phones. What does that, what implications of that for health? Uh, economically, we don't need as many people in the same jobs, so we need an entirely new workforce, particularly as AI comes along. What do we do with those that are displaced? A lot of people out there believe that technology is going to be the solution to all of our global grand challenges. Now, let me, let me interrupt you. If I know you've asked me not to, but let me interrupt <laughs> you. Yes, there is, of course, it's, it's, the point here is it's a double-edged sword. It's two sides of the same coin. The technology that gives us those benefits that allows me to find out the weather without even leaving my front door, that allows me to book, uh, you know, have my groceries ordered with a few words and they'll be delivered tomorrow afternoon. It's exactly that same technology that'll put half a dozen people out of business. And if I have one major criticism, and it's not only mine, if you look at manpower, if you look at all the organizations that look at this in any detail, they point out we are not preparing society for that change in terms of re-equipping people with skills, preparations of a social safety net for those that can't, the entire prospect of a large number of people out of work and unable to take part in the economic performance. And I'm glad that you mentioned the implications coming from technology because another major concern to the future and perhaps especially to our democracy is fake news. It's speculated on whether it had an effect on the election in 2016. And increasingly, we're seeing how the influx of fake news is contributing to a polarization of the world. We're also seeing how major technology companies are threatening traditional news media business models who provide fact-checked news and help build a common understanding of the world, which is important for a well-functioning democracy. Social media is feeding us with one-sided personalized news, moving political opponents even further apart. Technology is evolving to not only help spread fake news in the form of an article or image, but it's now possible to manipulate video and audio clips in a very believable manner. All of this is perhaps a lot more concerning than many of us are able to realize today. But in your view, as a journalist, a reporter, and and part of the media yourself, where do you see this going? 
I think we need to be, this is, I'm going to give you the sort of answer that I hate when somebody gives it to me, mm. because what you want is a nice declarative answer that goes into fake news and the nasties around it. And what me being miserable is going to say is, what do you mean by fake news? And I'm not parrying with you because I know what you mean. But I think you have to distinguish. We must distinguish between nefarious behavior by various states or others creating these groups online and what the president of the United States, Donald Trump, calls fake news, which is things he doesn't agree with, or fake news, real fake news, which is something simply wrong. Now, let's work our way up through those. And since it is a, one of the beauties of these sort of podcasts is we do know the ability to, we have got the ability just to take a few moments to go into it. Now, if we talk about the basics, wrong, wrong facts, simply getting it wrong. Well, that's, we don't need to call up fake news. We can simply say, you got it wrong. It's a mistake. Bad, bad, bad. Now you get to the president who wishes, as he did in the last 24 hours, stop fake news. What President Trump is saying is, I don't agree with it, and therefore it's fake. But I think if you look at the news, what he's talking about, it is factually accurate. And then finally, you've got what you're talking about, which is the state-sponsored uh, manipulation through social media, focus groups, Round, look at the Senate report into that only in the last 48 hours, which shows just how widespread this was. That is much more difficult, much more difficult. The president's can be summed up as lying. The newspaper that gets it wrong is simply wrong. But the first one, this miscreant behavior designed to, um, to frustrate and destroy the social process and, and democracy, that's very serious. Do you have any answers? How do we counteract it? The President of the United States calling half of this thing fake news. All I can say is this. If CNN, NBC, the BBC, CNBC, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, not the journal, if we're all fake news, then society has a much greater problem in journalism than that. If we're all fake, I remember a colleague said to me once, um, so everybody else is wrong and you're right. And it stopped me in my tracks because that's effectively what the president is saying, with the exception of Fox News. He says everybody else is wrong. Now, on the question that you're talking about, which is the, the how do we do it? It's very difficult. I think, the, I think the social media companies need to do more. They say they're doing what they can, but that's not enough. I think, secondly, you have to educate people. You have to educate people that um, there are certain sources that are going to be reputable and upon which you can rely, not for everything, and there are others that won't be. Um, and that's a long process. That's an education process of, of the public, basically. If you see something on Facebook in some news group that says Richard Quest at Hamsters, it's, a very, it's an analogy to a famous British news car, cartoon. Richard Quest at Hamsters. Um, you have to think, oh, well, that doesn't sound likely. Uh, I don't think it's true. No, that does not sound likely. Right. So, so in that situation, it is, you have to just take it as being, this, you asked me what to be done. What's to be done is to educate the public. You approach, you approach this on multiple prongs. Facebook, Twitter, Snap, they all have to, newspapers, um, Yahoo, they all have to take care 
what's going online and to ensure that people don't infiltrate um, with mendacious and nefarious intent. That's number one. Number two, people have to get wise. People have to get intelligent. People have to use their brains a little bit about the sort of things they see and ask, is it likely to be true? Exactly. And they do say that critical thinking is one of the most important skills of the future. But at the same time, we know that we're all biased to look for information that uh, resonates with our own existing views. So with, if we There's see anything that's fake. That. No, There's exactly. Nothing. But if it's fake, then, I mean, that's not a good thing, right? So even, even if we are smart intelligence people, we're not always able to, um, well, select wisely. No, absolutely not. But, uh, but I think the first stage has to be the companies themselves who are particularly Facebook, which has grown so big, if you've got a couple of billion users, and I mean, Facebook said it's employing more than 30,000 fact checkers and fake news guards. 30,000! 30,000! Just think about employing a workforce of that size. That in itself is going to create problems of those who are doing it well, those who are doing it badly, those who are doing it with intent, those who have got involved, those who, you know, who, who have got involved so they can frustrate the efforts. I'm telling you, if it was easy, answers would have been found. But um, it is the problem. It is the issue of our, nat- of our latest thinking. What do you think if Facebook and these technology companies are not able to counteract this in time, what do you see are the consequences? I mean, will it just continue to be get worse and worse and worse from what we're seeing today? No, I don't think it'll get worse. Uh, are we at the worst now? Well, I mean, let's not parry about what does the worst look like. Frankly, if Russia trying to influence the U.S. presidential election, which is the world's largest democracy. Um, yeah, well, India is the world's largest, but you know what I mean. If the world's strongest economy and largest, one of the largest democracies, then that's pretty serious. The fact they, did, they may or may not have uh, succeeded is irrelevant. They had a good attempt at it, and uh, uh, they seem to have made some progress. Whether that gets worse, who knows? I think we are all on guard, and that's the best place to be. But Again and again, come back to it, Isabel. It's up to the companies to deal with it first, and it's up to us to be more aware and more uh, on guard. During your visit at Oslo Business Forum in September 2018, you talked about some of the fundamental developments in the world since the financial crisis in 2008, including a loss of many world leaders, the only ones remaining being Vladimir Putin and, at least at the time of this podcast recording, Angela Merkel. In 2016, the world was shocked to learn that Donald Trump had become president, and then less than a year later, we're startled again when we heard of Brexit. But as a journalist, I mean, did you see this coming? I did see it, um, but not until later on. Let's start, first of all, when he walks, when he comes down the escalator at his launch party, and he says Mexicans are drug dealers and murderers and rapists, we all thought, well, this, ain't, this isn't going very far. Um, But as the campaign went on, I realised he had tapped into something, the Brexit mentality, and I realised I started to think he was going to get elected. I stopped thinking that after the famous Billy, uh, Billy tape came out, where he's talking about grabbing female parts and all of that. But then I took a road trip through Florida from Tallahassee in the north in the panhandle, to Key West in the south. And we were talking to farmers in mid-Florida. And whenever I asked how they were going to vote, they said, I've not made up my mind. 
Now, when somebody says they're not made up their mind, it usually means they're going to go for the controversial candidate. So by the time we got to election day, I was pretty sure Donald Trump was going to win. In the same way with Brexit, I'd travelled Britain the three weeks before. I'd been to East England, um, East Anglia, uh, and heard people say how they couldn't stand the European Union. I'd been up north and heard them say their things. So although I knew London was going to vote in favour of, of staying, it was pretty obvious to me the rest of the country was going to vote to leave. My point being that these shocks, they are, you, you can see them on the horizon if you know what to look for and if you go out into the country and talk to. And if I would say one mistake from our own network and other networks, and I think everybody accepts this now, is that we didn't go into America sufficiently to find out exactly what ordinary people were thinking. That's very interesting. I, I have to ask a question that I know that many people, perhaps especially in Europe, are afraid to even consider. Do you now predict that Trump is going to be reelected in 2020? Right. Let me, let me call you to task, if I may. Since it's a podcast, one can be slightly more adventurous in that sense. Sure. The intelligentsia liberal elite in Europe, as indeed in the US, but particularly in Europe, are horrified and abhor the fact that Donald Trump is president. They can see no reason. They see 50, 60, 70 years of the post-Second World War establishment being overturned. Everything from NATO to Paris to um, everything that, that we all have stood by. But that's not the way many Americans see it. The way Americans, many Americans see it is they've been taken for a ride. That Europe has freeloaded and if the best answer that Europe can give is, well, it's kept the peace in Europe for the last 70 years, Americans will say, well, it's time for you to keep your own peace. Which brings me to this point, because the premise of your question is it's a horrible thing if he gets reelected. The reality is in the United States, there are many people here who do think it would be a horrible thing if he was reelected. But there are many people in the Midwest and in the South who absolutely think he is doing a superb job. Not just his 30% core base, but if you extend it from this even more. I've got a good friend who's in Miami. He's a lawyer. We went to law school together. And I'm chatting to Brian about Donald Trump and the difficulties with, with the economy. And Brian says, ah, but at least he's making us proud again. At least people respect him. And it dawned on me he had voted for Donald Trump. He had voted for him. Whatever you and I may think about it. So when you ask, is he likely to get re-elected? The answer is very probably yes, because unless the arithmetic goes slightly askew, and it could, but at the moment, I would say yes, he'll get re-elected. And how do you think his re-election is going to, I guess, affect the, uh, the political landscape going forward the next four years after that? We don't know. I mean, you know, there are all sorts of things. Will he get, we don't know what Robert Mueller's investigation will show. We don't know uh, how tainted it might be. And his family, for example, his family of Eric, Don, Ivanka, will, will they be implicated in all of this? Will he step aside for Mike Pence to become president? We don't know. And if his popularity starts to wane, because what I can see happening, Isabel, I can see the economy slowing down in 2019. 
And I can see as the US gets ready to go to the polls in 2020, the economic scenario will be very different. People, unemployment may have started to rise. Uh, it'll be, we could have a shallow but long recession. Not definite, not definite, but it could happen. Um, and people will be feeling economically much weaker than they are at the moment. Do you think that we can expect any other major shocks in the years to come? Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. If you uh -oh. ask me what they are going to be, I will give you a very simple answer. Isabel, let's end this call now, because if I can see the future, I want to go and trade on it. I don't want to be <laughs> chatting to you about it. So there will be a ton of unexpected, dangerous, difficult, ridiculous events over the next 12, 24, 36 months. I'm, you're making me very worried. Um, but I guess, I guess it's good to see that you're very human. It is the nature of the beast. And as journalists, we celebrate the fact um, that on December, the, I ask you, I ask you and I ask you to do on December the 31st, this year, next year, any year, look back and think, oh, didn't see that coming. Whew, well, it didn't end up that bad. But that's the beauty of life. I guess I'll have to try to uh, get my head around that. I can't really see that with Trump. Uh, he uh, he has some uh, viewpoints that I just can't really uh, get. I, I just can't see them. But um, you are allowing yourself, which is your prerogative, the luxury of a public opinion on Donald Trump. People like myself do not enjoy that luxury. No, uh, that is very true. Thank you for reminding our listeners of that. Uh, finally, though, let's talk about cybersecurity. Every day we are reading about a new major hack. I'm sure that you report on a ton of them compromising our personal information and our privacy. And basically, we have all been hacked, whether we know it or not. Do you, as a journalist, uh, have any recommendations or concrete suggestions as to what companies or even individuals like you and me should do to prevent being hacked? Can we? So far, my credit card's been hacked. I've been told by the company that my, I've been hacked on my emails several times. I've been hacked on my health insurance. All the various stores where I've shopped have told me that I have been hacked. And most recently, uh, British Airways told me I'd been hacked. Uh, and most recently, Starwood Hotels told me that I'd been hacked. Get used to it. Get used to it. It's the norm. What you have to hope is that the hackings are diverse and that you monitor anywhere that you monitor anywhere that may have been hacked so that you can spot um, behavior or you can stop transactions that are not yours as for companies it's really incredibly simple it is the most important thing that any ceo can be responsible for any chief executive who does not make the technology people answerable to him or her alone is negligent. Any chairman and any board of directors that is not taking an intimate knowledge or actions over their cybersecurity of their company is negligent and should be fired. It is the single biggest existential threat any company faces. 
Wow, that was very clear. Thank you. <laughs> um, before we end, though, I want to challenge you to break all of what we've talked about down. We've talked about Trump and we've talked about Brexit and we've talked about fake news and cybersecurity. Can you predict any trends or challenges and what they will mean for leaders in the rest of 2019, which is when these uh, listeners will be hearing it? Anything that they should be paying extra close attention to? Yeah, economic growth. Keep a watch on it. The economic growth and volatility. Eventually, eventually, if it all gets bad enough, you do go into recession. We're not there yet. Some way to go. Uh, but that's what I would keep an eye on. Brexit could be absolutely horrific or could be a total damp squib. If Remember, if, they, if the deal goes through, if the deal goes through, then it just continues, um, you know, the transition period will keep everything pretty much as it is. Richard, thank you so much. We've reached the end of our time. And even though I feel like we could probably talk for a lot longer, I, I have feel a... I've been miserable. I feel I've been downhearted. I feel I've been less than cheery. And that would be a mistake because fundamentally, let me give me give me one second to just readdress the technology of which I'm so down in one of my comments, I adore. It allows me to do my banking, my emails, send my partner a nice message to do anything. It allows me all of this. When I travel, I can keep in touch with him on an hourly basis without any trouble. The technology is brilliant. It's revolutionized our lives. It's given us opportunities we never knew we could have. The transportation, the airlines, the airports that we travel on, they are fantastic. Yes, there are delays. They get a bit wearisome. But we travel further, we travel more often, and we travel in more comfort. The entertainment at our disposal is much greater and better. The healthcare that we enjoy is of a much higher quality, particularly where you are. And best of all, we get to just enjoy life without worrying as much as we ever did about war, pestilence, famine, at least in the developed world. These are major, major achievements of which we should give thanks. So please, let's end on a cheery, cheery note. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, giving us that optimistic uh, taste of technology. I 100% I agree with you. This uh, technology has helped us in so, so many ways and will continue to do so. I would not be speaking to you like this if it wasn't for a Swedish company that started Skype all those years ago. That is very true. But before I let you go, we do have three quick questions. If you could give your 20-year-old self, 20-year-old self, two pieces of advice, what would they be? You're going to make the same mistakes. Just get on with it and learn from them. And the second mistake, uh, the second piece of advice, which you won't take, but try to if you can, it is just enjoy it. You will never, I say this to my colleagues, you will never remember the story that you came back from early from holiday or you gave up theatre tickets for, or you didn't go out with your lover, you will never remember in 20 years' time the reason why you stopped. But you will remember the event missed. So you don't get those events back. And I, I suppose the real piece of advice I would give, one piece of advice, just be nice. Hmm. I think that was a very good piece of advice, all three of them, actually. Um... 
This next question now seems a little bit boring, but what is your favorite podcast? Well, this one. Oh, of course. Well, it hasn't launched yet, but uh, let's hope so. Exactly. Now- I mean, I'm already looking into the future. I, <laughs> I, I uh, you know, um, I tend on, I listen to, to, to the radio, yes. To the radio? Any channel? Um, yeah, well, I, I like to, since I, I like to know what's going back on at home. So in the morning when I'm on the treadmill, even though it's five hours later on replay, I listen to BBC Radio 4's Today programme. Where should people go to follow you? CNN.com at Richard Quest. At Richard Quest on Twitter. Uh, Quest in NY. Quest in NY on Instagram. Thank you so much for speaking to me today, Richard. It's been incredibly fascinating. It's been very interesting. I've ha- ha- I've had to try very hard not to laugh several times during this conversation in order to not interrupt you. So thank you so much. I'll give you one more piece of information of where they can get hold of me. Richard.quest at CNN.com. All I can tell you is that is my real email. You'll never know until you try it. That's a great tip for all our listeners. Please email Richard ASAP. Thank you again, Richard. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Future Forecast podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness. Tune in next week for more insights and expert tips on technology, leadership, and sustainability. 